Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome a new contributor aboard this week. Uh, Juliana Sweeney joins us from Virginia. And Juliana, I know you, uh, first of all, congratulations on being a Young Voices contributor. Tell us a little bit about who you are and some of the other hats that you wear. Sure. Yeah, Brian, thank you so much for having me. Um, Yes, my name is Juliana Sweeney. I am a high school teacher and I also am a volleyball coach and athletic director, as well as a contributor at Young Voices. Well, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for readlion.com, and, and, and I just reflect, you're writing specifically about something that's going on in Virginia, but I see this happening just about every direction I look, and that is the public school establishment seems to be... Um, it seems to be having some conflict with parental rights and parental ability to uh, direct their child's education. Talk to me about what's going on in Virginia. In particular, I'd like to know about Sage's Law. Sure. Yeah. Well, before I tell you um, about Sage's Law in particular, let me tell you a little bit about Sage's story and who she is and why this law would have been named after her. So Sage was a high schooler in Loudoun County, Virginia, and she asked uh, her classmates and her teachers to begin referring to her um, with a new gender identity of he, him. And she also started going by the name Draco. Uh, The school, the teachers and administrators in particular, kept this from her grandmother, who was her primary caretaker and parent at home. Um, And so eventually her grandmother found a hall pass with the name Draco on it and confronted Sage about it. Um, And then that night, Sage told her mom that, or her grandmother rather, that she was transgender and then that night she ran away from home and she was sex trafficked in Washington DC and Maryland and eventually found in Texas um, where she was uh, through a series of events reunited with her grandmother. And so her grandmother began speaking out on this issue in particular the right of the parent. And as you said, this is uh, really a, a huge problem in Virginia but it's becoming more apparent all over the country. And so the law itself, there are two parts to it. First, it would have required teachers or administrators to contact at least one parent of a student who wishes to be known by new pronouns at school. And then second, it also further defines uh, the parent's role under the law. So parents who call children and raise children according to their biological gender cannot be considered uh, abusive or neglect. So in some two parts, one informing parents and two clarifying the role of the parent. Wow. I mean, that's that hits a lot of different uh, buttons all at once, but it's it's indicative of struggles that are going on all over the country right now. Um, what what happened with this law? Um, I, I understand that it, it did not actually make it into law in the Virginia Assembly. Yes, that's correct. Uh, unfortunately, this did not pass the Virginia legislature and in particular died in the Virginia Senate, Senate Committee on Education. Um, And in my mind, there are two types of laws. There are messaging laws which say something or clarify something, and then there are laws which create something new. And this bill would have had two elements to it. I think it would have been messaging and creating something new. Um, It was a messaging law that it would have affirmed and defined that parent's role. 
but it also would have accomplished something new by adding that requirement for schools to contact parents in these situations. And so it's unfortunate and really a loss for parents that this didn't pass. So what options does that leave parents? I mean, some parents are going to be okay with that. I mean, there it seems like there are some parents who are actually kind of eager to get their kids, you know, involved in, in you know, transgender activity and politics and so forth. But for those parents who are concerned and say, I really don't want my kid going down this road, what are the options available to them? Certainly. Well, as I addressed um, in my article, uh, which, by the way, specifically um, written for Christians and for people who are uh, who see the public school as the only option, um, education really is the cornerstone of our free country. And I personally desire for public schools and private schools to flourish. Um, But sadly, um, public schools right now are treating families as obstacles to skirt around. They're not valuing the values of the family. Um, And I'm not the first to say right now that public schools are failing. Our children and Christians in particular shouldn't uh, send their, their children to public schools that see them as the enemy. Uh, Christians in particular should send their kids to schools that align with their values and and champion transparency. Um, And that's not possible for every situation, uh, but atheists wouldn't send their kids to a Christian school in the same way that Christians shouldn't send their kids to a school uh, that is belligerent against their values. Um, And so my recommendation is that when it is possible for Christians to send their children to a school which values their role, which values transparency. Um, And teachers at Christian schools recognize the sacred role of the parent, of the family. Um, And the last few years really have brought light to um, these dark spaces in education. It seems like every other week, some teacher posts a video of themselves uh, vowing not to involve the parents uh, or to be a safe space, which is not appropriate for young children. And so the biggest recommendation I have is to find a school which aligns with your values so that you can have peace when you send your kid, when you drop your kid off in the mornings. Um, And if it's not possible to send them to a Christian school, then be involved. Um, That's the very basic but very fundamental uh, recommendation that so many of us have be the squeaky wheel so to say be involved in your child's education when you can um, and so that is my biggest recommendation to parents who are struggling right now in this this world of so, education something i took away from your article and 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 you can correct me if, if i'm reading this wrong but I, I feel like you made a very strong case for even if it's inconvenient even if it becomes a, a burden for parents they should still consider shouldering that responsibility rather than outsourcing the training of their their child strictly to you know the public school system like like it was some kind of daycare uh, talk to me about uh, some of the reasons why parents stay you know step back from from private schools but maybe they should uh, you know gird their loins up and 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 go for it anyway sure um i think there is a a reputation that christian schools have of being for the elite or being for the wealthy um and that's just not the case i mean Uh, On a personal side of things, uh, my mom was able to send me to a Christian school, even though I was surrounded by those whose parents had more uh, money than we did, but she made sacrifices. My whole family made sacrifices. 
Um, and then also recently, there are many laws, uh, many bills being debated in Arizona and in Iowa about uh, voucher programs, different tax exemptions, so that this becomes more universally available. And so um, it is a sacrifice, uh, but there are ways in which uh, every parent can make those sacrifices or consider other options than the traditional drop your kid off at the bus, send them to the public school every morning. And uh, in light of the pandemic, we are seeing more of those options pop up. So we do have to be creative. We do uh, have to look around a bit, uh, but the, the price, the cost involved is worth it. One of the objections I've heard from people who are opponents, particularly of school choice, which would open, excuse me, open this up to parents who are looking for those options, is they say, "Well, there's no accountability," um, and I kind of, I kind of laugh to myself when I hear that. But talk to me about when, when it comes to a private school, where is the accountability? Well, and you know, the public school is funded by the state and funded so to say, by the community. But private schools, Christian schools in particular, are funded by the individual, funded by the parents. And so if the parents aren't happy, they're not going to send their kid to a school that doesn't align with their values. And so we are held accountable by parents, not only you know with their dollars, but also with their involvement in the everyday. There's not very many days in the school year where I don't receive uh, emails or calls from parents. And although sometimes these are time-consuming uh, parts of my day, it's definitely the most one of the most important parts of my days involving the family um, and making sure they know what's going on in my classroom. Um, and then also there are structures in place, safeties in place for teachers and administrators uh, to make sure that we are all on the same page with content as well. I love it. I mean, look, if if it's your money coming out of your pocket, it seems to me there's great incentive for accountability in where that money's going. And if it, in a school, if a private school isn't delivering, a parent can simply say, "Okay, then I will take my business elsewhere." Most people don't seem to have that option with the, with the uh, public schools. Um, for people who want to follow you, want to follow your writing, where can they find your work, and where can they find you on social media? Sure, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Juliana Sweeney. Okay. And are there, are there other publications that you write for uh, besides uh, Read Lion? At the moment, we are just, I am just at Read Lion. Okay. Marvelous article, by the way. We'll include it in the show notes. Juliana Sweeney, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Elijah Gullett back to the program. It hasn't been too long since we talked, Elijah, but uh, for the sake of people meeting you for the first time, uh, talk to us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Elijah Gullett. I'm a recent graduate from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and a Young Voices writer and commentator. Uh, and I work and write on issues related to housing, urban development, environment, and civil liberties. So I... 
Normally, when I read something about the uh, United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, I, I kind of reach for my wallet just to check and make sure, is it still there? Okay. Yeah, it's good. So, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm one of those people who's a little trepidatious anytime that, that they come out with a report. But I'm looking at an article you wrote about a new IPCC report that you say should actually inspire hope rather than panic. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so the uh, most recent IPCC report is actually a synthesis of their past with some additional updates for the year for the past five. So it's a synthesis of the past five they've done and then some of the most recent up-to-date research on environmental issues, uh, according to the UN. Um, and it's really notable because in many ways, it's pretty optimistic and it kind of shows how much progress we've already made. Um, obviously, it's the IPCC. There are aspects of it that are going to be cons- like they're still very concerned and they consider climate change to be a very serious issue. You know, I don't want to downplay that part of it, but when they're talking through this sort of historical analysis of the changes that have happened over the past five years, this picture kind of starts to be painted of how much progress we're going to make at the individual level, um, at the local level and the international level. Okay. So what, uh, tell me about this latest report and, uh, what, where do they, where do they wax hopeful as opposed to uh, panicky? I think one of the biggest, uh, most hopeful things from this report is decarbonization and the progress we really made on this front. The cost of solar energy has dropped 60% in 10 years. The cost for all your clean energies has also been on a similar decline. The cost for new batteries to power these clean energy sources, which used to be a major hurdle to the implementation of clean energy, is rapidly declining. And the advancement of electric vehicle technologies and other battery powered and electrical electric powered te- technologies is really advancing um, at a really rapid rate. Uh, and I think that really indicates the power of both the market and market-based policy incentives to change climate change without the doom and the gloom of so much of the environmental movement. Um, I think another really cool thing that's come out of this uh, is the power of natural climate solutions to address climate change. So sort of once again, like there's been a lot of doom and gloom and this idea that like planting trees is this kind of like silly Earth Day thing people do, but it's not serious climate change policy, right? But natural climate solutions, just reforestation, a thing that's already underway in places like France and the Amazon, has the power to reduce climate emissions, global climate emissions by about a third. Um, and I think it really shows the power. We don't need we don't need a big government and we don't need the climate doomerism and the degrowth and all these other things that people have been suggesting to make meaningful progress on this issue. I'm glad you mentioned the the degrowth because I look I don't study this you do this part of your job is to to really be on top of this, um, but when I when I hear people talk about well we've got to reduce you know carbon emissions, um, in my mind the connection I always seem to make is oh that means we've got to roll back you know being uh, being able to produce goods and services and so forth in other words we have to uh, we have to lower our economic expectations but you make the case that that doesn't necessarily have to be so actually as as a way to you know, meaningfully lessen those carbon emissions. We don't have to basically go back to, you know, washing our clothes on a rock down by the river. Yeah, definitely. So it used to be orthodox opinion among environmentalists that environment, uh, environmental degradation and 
uh, economic growth went hand in hand, that you couldn't address environmental uh, degradation or climate change without meaning, like, without reducing uh, economic growth. But the reality is we have through innovation, through technology, through just the form, like the power of individuals working together and like putting their brains together on this issue, have been able to successfully decouple environmental uh, damage and climate uh, change and economic growth. So for a lot of major uh, US, I'm sorry, a lot of major international um, countries, uh, they've been able to have massive economic growth on par with the U.S., including the U.S., uh, but also plenty of European nations have been able to increase their GDP at the same rate as they had before without necessarily increasing the amount of carbon emissions. And like I said, this comes back to all of these other innovations that we've made on things like clean energy, on things like uh, new, less carbon intensive ways of even acquiring natural gas through things like fracking. I mean, just all the innovations we've been able to make in the 10 years have really made the difference. It was never these top down policies that <laughs> drove that difference like they thought it was originally. It was the market working the way it was always going to. Well, and, and it seems like, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the doomerism. That's not just from, you know, the, the climate change side. I've heard uh, quite a bit, uh, you know, from people saying, hey, there's not enough lithium in the world to create the batteries that we need for electric cars and so forth. And I don't know who to believe. I know it's a very polarizing issue, but I'd love to get your thoughts on um, some of the rare metals that, that uh, or the rare earth metals that are needed to, to create those uh, EV batteries. Um, is it a challenge? I mean, are there, are there some challenges associated with it? How how accurate is, is the concern that there's not enough of them? And, and is, is that just doomerism or, or is there is there some truth to that? So I do think there re, that historically the U.S. has relied on foreign critical mi mineral mining to uh, uh, supply our electric vehicles and our electrification process, but that's pretty quickly changing. So in my home state of North Carolina, for example, we have, I think, at least one, if not two, proposed lithium mines. And this is becoming increasingly common uh, throughout the United States is that we're mining or at least trying to mine a lot of our own critical minerals that are going to make electrification possible. Um, the actual problem, the actual thing that's halting some of this progress though, is not electric vehicles, it's not electrification on the demand end. It's the fact that we have all these rules and regulations on the supply end that's restricting our ability to build these new mines. So in my case in North Carolina, the lithium mine that they're proposing out in Gastonia, North Carolina, has run into a lot of permitting problems at the state and federal level. But that's a, that is a very solvable issue, and we can solve it through things like permitting reform uh, at the national level that's already being proposed by House Republicans and just passed uh, and is on to the Senate. So there's very feasible ways out of that problem in the near future. Interesting. What about uh, China? India, other, you know, very high population nations that that uh, emit a pretty fair amount of greenhouse gases just because there is a lot of industry there. Um, do they go along with this or would the U.S. have to be leading the way? I don't think we're the world's leading contributor in, in greenhouse gases, are we? No. And I mentioned in the article that we make up less than 20 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions and we're far outshone by China. 
Um, I think in a lot of ways we will just have to lead on this. I think that's America really standing up and, uh, you know, supporting uh, technological innovations and like what I mentioned, solar energy, clean energy, going forward with permitting reform to make clean, clean energy easier to build. But also it means American energy independence. So that more countries are getting their energy sources from cleaner American uh, oil and natural gas and clean energy uh, rather than from dirtier foreign source, sources like China or Saudi Arabia or Venezuela. So by pre- providing an alternative, you know, we can help shift that needle in the right direction. Uh, even if China doesn't want to play along initially, if they want, if they want to have the same kind of economic uh, competitiveness, they're going to have to adjust what they're doing. Is, is that right? Exactly. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's the way forward and it doesn't put us into uh, potentially dangerous international situations. I love that in your article, you lean on as, as solutions, human ingenuity and collaboration. And, and I couldn't agree more. You know, if we're going to solve problems, um, the more we can free up that ingenuity and collaboration, the more likely we are to, to get solutions that are going to make a difference. Elijah, where can people follow you? Where can they find you on social media? Yep, you can find me on Twitter at Market Urbanist with an S at the end. Uh, I share all of my articles there and I talk about my uh, ideas and thoughts. Okay, very good. Great to talk with you once again. Thanks for having me on. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. I'm happy to welcome Jeremiah Ludwig back to the program. And uh, Jeremiah, for those who are meeting you for the very first time, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Good afternoon, Brian. Thank you for having me again. I'm an independent housing policy analyst working here in Washington, D.C. I focus on uh, local housing regulation uh, around the country, mostly focusing on the southwest region and Puerto Rico. Okay, and I'm looking at an article you wrote uh, that was published in the Orange County Register, uh, talking about uh, part of the housing crisis in California. And I look, I, I have in my mind, oh, it must be terrible. But could you kind of give us some context when we talk about a housing crisis in California? How bad is that crisis? Well, when we're talking about California specifically, it's pretty dramatic. So, regardless of where you live in the country, uh, we've seen a housing crunch over the past few years. Uh, on one front, we've seen prices go up dramatically ever since the 2008 crash when prices dropped for a couple years straight. We've seen prices be going up steadily ever since then. And in 2021, we saw prices finally get even higher than they have ever been in the past, uh, surpassing even the prices back in 2007. Um, and this has been compounded with the fact that we've seen interest rates going up as well. Uh, interest rates more than doubled over the 12 months between late 2021 and uh, 2022. And as a, a side effect of that, that equates to about a, a 40% increase in the in the real cost of housing. That is how much you actually pay for your mortgage, um, which has had a, just an absolutely dramatic impact. It's it's pushed it to the point where for many people, not just in California, uh, you can't afford to buy a home anymore. Your average home prices are over $300,000. Uh, and you're you're looking at very high interest rates that make your mortgage rates very high. But in California, things are much, much worse. 
California, it so happens, is a fairly pleasant place to live, all things considered. It's a, yeah. got an absolutely wonderful climate. It's got a lot of great jobs. It's got a lot of the nation's greatest schools. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that somebody might want to live in California. And as a result, there's a lot of demand for housing in the region. But there's a problem with that. If there's a lot of demand for housing, you've got to be building housing. You've got to actually be increasing your supply of housing. But California sucks at doing that. They basically uh, dipped their entire housing supply in amber about 40, 50 years ago, and they don't produce housing hardly at all anymore. And over the past couple of years, though, they've been trying to come to grips with this. Usually, uh, more liberal states tend to lean more toward uh, the, the demand side fixes to the housing market. So they try and you know, subsidize people, they provide vouchers, they do that sort of thing. And always the supply side fixes have always been the more libertarian conservative thing. Um, but over the past couple of years, uh, a, lot of, a lot of Democrats, including Gavin Newsom, have come to terms with the fact that this is really a supply side problem. And they're really starting to, to come to grips with that and actually implement policy that's going to force the, the land use regulations to loosen up so they can start building again. And hopefully so their prices can go down and people can afford to live in homes again. You mentioned in your article that uh, Gavin Newsom signed a, a law, signed into law a series of bills that mandated the construction of new housing, but the bills effectively ban single-family zoning. Um, so, talk to me a little bit about, um, he's saying it's okay to build more, but only if it's high-density type housing. Is, is that correct? So, <laughs> the two bills you're talking about are SB 9 and SB 10. Uh, these are major bills that are passed in 2021 that effectively do ban single-family zoning. A little bit of background on single-family zoning is in order here just to explain how they work. Uh, so, in the early 1900s, Herbert Hoover made a huge push to try and get the states to start adopting uh, zoning codes when they're implementing their, their city planning uh, ideas. So zoning is effectively just a tool that city planners can use in order to put together a long-term plan for a particular region. The zoning authority is authorized under the policing authority. So it's under that same constitutional provision, but it's authorized at the state level. So the state authorized the municipalities to actually create zoning codes, and then the municipalities then go and they decide what, what specific zoning codes they want to have. So it's, it's fairly localized in that sense. It's authorized by the state, and then the municipalities decide how they actually want to go about it. Uh, what that means, though, is ultimately the, the decision of how uh, the zoning codes are authorized and where the borders are drawn for those zoning codes is decided at the state level. So that means Gavin Newsom can come in and say, well, we're going to put a lower limit on this. You can't just isolate all of this to like only having single family zones in you know 80% of your cities so they can, he can put like a limit on how the zoning codes can work and then once he once he changes the the state uh, authorizations it basically makes it so it's now illegal for a, a municipality to have a provision in their zoning codes that only allows for single family homes to be built on a particular lot uh, and it, it becomes incumbent on that municipality to change their codes within a set amount of time. Now, a part of the program that California is going with is they're doing these estimates where they estimate how many houses would be built if a particular region is actually going to change their codes in compliance with the, the state expectations. Um, and, and that's where a lot of this controversy hinges on. The article is less about the 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 housing crisis, as it is about California politics, um, and, and my lingering fear that this is going to become a, a politicized mess. A tug of war. Very hard <laughs> to actually get anything done. 
Okay, so your article is about how Huntington Beach Republicans, though, have been standing up for local government control over property rights. What happened in Huntington Beach, and and are are they doing the right thing by by standing up like this? (laughs) In my opinion, no. Uh, I think that this is an inappropriate politicization of something that is really nonpartisan. Um, And let let me sink that point home a little bit. So uh, just to provide some context for California politics, California is obviously a very liberal state. As a result, you have a state administration that can effectively push through any policy agenda that it wants with very little resistance from Republicans, because just there are not enough Republicans in the state Senate to to do anything about it, even if they wanted to. Um, As a result, you get a lot of fragmentation in terms of local politics. You get a lot of individual municipalities that are uh, majority Republican or led by Republicans who feel like their rights and their interests are constantly being trampled on by the central government. And there's a constant war going on between these these local municipalities and these regional uh, Republican governments in California and the central state government. But Ultimately, the local Republicans can't hardly do anything. So it basically makes it so that anything that the state does is is bad. It's going to step on some toes almost by default because people really – Republicans in, in California really, really, really don't like Gavin Newsom. They really don't. Um, this is – I mean, for a lot of Republicans, this is a, this is a bit of a weird shift because for many Republicans around the country, including in Montana and Arizona, um, the, the, the old – perspective of using supply side uh, solutions to these kind of problems is still the majority opinion. Uh, we still accept that that's a, that's a good way to think about you know property rights. You don't have a right to decide what your neighbor can do with your property. You have a right to decide what you can do with your property. That's how property rights work. It's not your neighborhood rights. It's your, your property rights, what you actually own, not what your neighbor owns. Um, and in a certain sense, uh, just from my interacting with the politics on this and just following it over the past year here, my sense has been that it's been kind of a Gavin Newsom does a lot of stuff that we don't like. Here's something else that he did. So we, by default, don't like it as well. Mm. But this this is actually something that they should be supporting because this actually aligns really well with conservative politics dramatically because, you know, for – for decades and decades now, you know, conservatives have been arguing for zoning codes to be reformed. You know, a lot of the research that we have on why zoning codes are bad comes out of places like the Cato Institute and the Manhattan Institute, which are traditionally very conservative academic institutions. Um, and so this is kind of a weird switch. And I think a lot of Republicans are still trying to catch up with the fact that like, oh, wow, we actually convinced liberals to really pick up a supply side solution to something. Um, but there's kind of a, just a disconnect because of the nature of California politics, where it's just not clicking quite, um, and they feel like they feel like the the state is trying to to force them to deal with large amounts of immigration, uh, and they're forcing them to basically open up their housing market so that more and more people can move move in, and that they'll they'll lose you know control over their their political and and kind of cultural bubble that they have there. Huntington Beach is a, a very wealthy upscale community. Um, it's actually really nice. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's, it's I a haven't. beautiful, beautiful part of California. I haven't, yeah. but uh, but it, it sounds. I mean, it sounds like they're justifiably, you know, proud of their community and and want to retain, you know, the um, the characteristics that that make it, you know, what it is. Um, I appreciate too, though, your your point of view on this because my knee jerk reaction would be up oh, central, you know, one size fits all uh, solution. Um, you know, and and I'm, I guess maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I have a little bit of contrarian in me after all. He's like, well, if Gavin Newsom likes it, then I probably should be against it. But 
the, the bigger question, as you point out here, is does it really solve the problem you know, of, of people who are trying and need housing? And, and it sounds like uh, if, if people could put politics aside, they could probably come to some pretty workable solutions. But that's a big yeah. if, because it seems like uh, that's, that's people's identity almost in, in many cases. I, I will point out here, I, in no means, by no means do I believe that Gavin Newsom has somehow switched over to being some market conservative <laughs> overnight. That is absolutely not what's happened. He's had to come to grips with the fact that for decades, California has thrown everything they can at their housing crisis, and they've only made it worse. And he's just coming to terms with the fact that they've got to try some other things. And to a certain extent, they've tried to take ownership of the, the new approach to doing things, of using a supply-side solution. And if that's what they need to make it work politically, I'm all for it, because it it does work. We have a large body of research that shows if we free up zoning codes, we actually we're going to introduce more supply and prices will go down in the long term. Again, we're talking with Jeremiah Ludwig. Jeremiah, where can people find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Ludwig underline Jeremiah. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. Very happy to welcome Harrison Griffiths back to the program. He is a contributor for Young Voices. And Harrison, you wear a couple of other hats as well. For those meeting you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I work at the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a free market think tank uh, in the United Kingdom. We are doing our best, despite the hostile political environment, to uh, put forward the case for free markets and a society based around individual liberty. Very good. And I'm looking at a wonderful article that you wrote for politics.co.uk about uh, religious freedom for all, religious privilege for none. And, uh, you know, sometimes I get a little bit myopic and, and I tend to think, well, you know, these battles over religious freedom seem to be just limited to the USA. They're not. They're, they're taking place in other places as well. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on in the UK in regard to uh, legal protections for religious freedom and and where, where some of that friction is taking place and what some of the solutions are to make sure that religious liberty is protected without creating religious privilege. Yeah, so I mean, as I've said before, when it comes to free speech, uh, there are serious uh, debates in the United States about this, but I really do envy what you have, uh, even at its worst in the First Amendment, because what's going on over here and often in a lot of Europe is far, far worse. Um, in, in this particular case, the, 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 the case that I wrote about, uh, Last month, uh, a student in a, a town in the north of England called Wakefield uh, was suspended from his school for uh, minorly scuffing a copy of the Holy Quran. Uh, and this created some quite significant uproar in the community. Uh, he and his family received death threats. His wow. mother uh, went. His mother went to the local mosque to uh, basically apologise to the local community. Uh, the local chief of police was there with her. And you can only really interpret this as fear of retribution. And that has brought forward a, a debate that's been simmering under the surface in long, for a long while in Britain, that certain areas uh, with strong Muslim communities uh, that often have conservative and radical elements within it uh, are creating these kind of de facto blasphemy laws where you can't really uh, say or do things that will upset these communities uh, for fear, basically, of violent retribution. And that got me thinking about this paradox that seems to exist in the UK, 
when it comes to religious freedom. On one hand, religious speech that's deemed hateful or extremist can be prosecuted uh, with the coercive force of the state, but it's simultaneously true that you have these de facto blasphemy laws. And, and that's exactly the opposite of what you want in a free society. You want liberal, secular, general laws to be enforced against uh, those trying to bring religion into public institutions like state schools, or those who use threats of violence to intimidate people for peaceful activities. Uh, but you also want them to be able to say what they want. Speech is nonviolent. You want them to be able to practice their religion as they see fit. Interesting. I mean, look, if if this kid had had uh, been doing something that was really meant to uh, to be provocative, you know, uh, burning a Quran, uh, dropping it in a, in a toilet or something like that, that would that would seem to me to be uh, you know a, a very provocative a action. But uh, it seems like what he did, well, perhaps a little misguided, was was not intended, you know, to to be a, an act of blasphemy or otherwise disrespect uh, to to the Muslim community. Why does uh, why does the law go after him as a hate crime? Why is that taken so seriously? Well, it wasn't. It didn't quite rise to that standard, oh. thankfully. And I can't help but think that that's due to the public attention it ended up getting. But it was recorded by the police as a hate incident, which is mm. utterly staggering. And he was interviewed by the police uh, before everybody realised that he was not, in fact, the problem and that the people who were trying to give him death threats and cause trouble were, in fact, the problem. And that's what's so frustrating about this particular case. This is a 14-year-old boy who just happened to have a copy and... He claims it was an accident. There doesn't seem to be any strong proof that it was an intentional act. And and the book sustained minor scuffs. The, the boy, as it happens, at 14 years old, also has high-functioning autism as well, which just makes this such a minor event to cause such a controversy and subject him and his family to quite horrific death threats. It's, it's, it's quite a concerning state of affairs up there at the moment. And and I have to ask, were the were the death threats coming from the Muslim community? Uh, yes, it, it seems so. Um, that the, the police have basically they've spoken to the family and they've said that they will protect them. But nonetheless, the the fact that these death threats have come in, and yet it was the boy's mother, a non a non-Muslim woman, going into a mosque, forced to wear uh, a veil on her head and apologize to the community through fear of this causing a stir. That, that is not what you want to see, that there is something very wrong with that state of affairs. Oh, I would agree. Look, I'm a simple guy, but uh, death threats to me seem like a much more serious offense than uh, someone you know, inadvertently scuffing a holy book or otherwise taking it somewhere where they shouldn't. I mean, one, both could, both of those things could be wrong, but one of them seems very, uh, very aggressive and dangerous. Absolutely, and I want, I want to make, I want to make the point as well that even if he had done something provocative with the clear intent to offend people. I mean, I wouldn't personally do it. I don't think you should ever destroy a book. There's always some helpful information that you could get out of it, or at least that somebody else could if you gave them to it, if you gave it to them. But uh, even then, uh, you should not be, there, there is no justification whatsoever for the use of government force or private violence uh, to stop people doing that or to punish them for doing that. That is, that is their right, 
and they ought to be protected in doing so. And and to some extent, this is the, the paradox that I talk about in the article. I do have quite a lot of sympathy for many Muslims across the country who are themselves subject to censorship by the state and because of the war on terror surveillance by the state for expressing their sincerely held religious views that don't conform to liberal sensibilities or are considered to be extremist or hateful by the government. That This is the really quite strange thing about this. You can have your speech suppressed by the state, but at the same time, uh, in certain circumstances, you are also uh, subject to heightened protections uh, for your religious sensibilities, uh, which then undermines the individual liberty and free expression of other people who say things or do things you don't that that particular group doesn't approve of. No, and it's that peaceful expression part that, that really grabs me. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think it, it may have been you and I who were talking about uh, a, a lady who was arrested for praying silently here just a, a few yes, months ago. that's or, right, N- near an abortion clinic, yeah. Yeah, which again, you know, maybe maybe people would disagree with her standing outside an abortion, uh, you know, providing clinic. Um, but when she was asked, "Are you praying?" you know, and her answer, "Well, I might be," and, and I believe she she yeah. was cited at that point. And what 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 does make both of these cases so uh, alarming and frustrating is because they are so minor. I still believe, and it's the main point that you have the right to to set fire to a copy of the Quran, you have the right to very forcefully protest outside an abortion clinic, um, even if I might disagree with people doing that. Uh, But in these particular cases, silently praying and being intimidated about what she is thinking in her own, or interrogated about what she is thinking in her own head, and the case of this lad, minor scuffs on a book, it just, it really, it hits home just how much trouble we're in when it comes to religious freedom. You know, and and like you, I, I would not set out to, to otherwise defame or desecrate someone else's symbols of something that represents uh, holiness to them. At the same yeah. time, I, I wonder if, if sometimes... Sometimes we don't go too far. I've, I've seen this in the U.S. when it comes to a desecration of the United States flag. And people say, that is a sacred object. And, and I, I'm going to apply what I'm going to say here to not only flags, but even to books of Scripture. If it is mass-produced, it's not. it can represent something sacred, sacred, but it's not necessarily a sacred object itself. Does that make sense? Absolutely. If it's your property, you do as you desire with it no matter what that might represent to certain other people, no matter how much they might be offended by that, it's yours to do with as you wish and publicize and express as you wish. And you don't just have that right, but you have the right to be defended against those who try and use force to stop you. Um, And that is the most important point here. Threats and intimidation are never justified as a response to a peaceful action, no matter the circumstances, no matter the sensitivities. And that's what we've really lost in the UK. Thankfully, even though the flag burning amendment came within one vote in the US Senate of being sent to the states for ratification, uh, you have never undermined your First Amendment. Even though I may have many gripes with Supreme Court jurisprudence since the New Deal era, they have been very good when it comes to First Amendment speech, particularly religious protection. Um, And yeah, I mean, you do have your disputes over there, but count your blessings that you have the support of the Constitution and the law. In the UK, we really don't. All right. Thank you so much. Again, we're talking with Harrison Griffiths. He is a Young Voices contributor and also a communications officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Uh, Harrison, where can people follow you? Where can they find your work? Uh, So on Twitter, uh, on at Real Harrison G. 
And please also visit the Institute of Economic Affairs website. We've got, if you're a person who loves individual liberty and free markets, there is a lot of material that you would definitely be uh, up for reading. All right. Great to visit with you once again. I hope we talk again soon. Thanks very much for having me on.